When you are building something no one has ever seen, something no one has ever imagined, who can you turn to for help? The answer is the other people who are facing the same issues you are. Those product inventing, boundary pushing, design obsessed folks who are just like you. Welcome to AWS Startup Stories. I'm Michelle Kung. And I'm Michael Copeland. What follows are the tools that work, the leadership practices that make a difference, and the lessons you only learn by building a company. And one more thing, what startup jockeys do with a very rare item, their downtime. So let's get to it. We're taking a deep dive into ASEAN in the following podcast, talking with founders and investors from one of the world's fastest growing startup ecosystems. From Singapore to Ho Chi Minh City, Bangkok, Jakarta, and other parts of the region, hear how entrepreneurs are tackling this massive market, what investors are hunting for, and why startups are having such an impact across all dimensions in this part of the world. Welcome to the AWS Startups Podcast. I am here with Raghav Kapoor, who is the co-founder and CEO of Singapore-based Smart Karma. Raghav, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Great to be on. Uh, let's start as we like to. Uh, how are you and how are yours? And how are things in Singapore? Quite good, actually. Uh, you know, it's election time now in Singapore, and it's, uh, it's exciting to see that the company is emerging out of lockdown just in time. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Well, uh, it's, I, I like to hear optimism around the world and uh, we're, getting, we're getting some of that. So um, I'm glad to hear that. Well, let's talk about Smart Karma. You and your co-founders came out of Relegare Capital and you saw this gap in the research uh, industry and the fintech space. So tell us where the idea for Smart Karma came from. I guess to understand Smart Karma, you've got to take a few steps back and look at where our journeys began as a founding team. So I've, I've worked in finance all my life, but I've, I've never really studied finance or done a course in economics. I've always been a tech guy. I, I did computer science and math throughout my education. And I saw the real multiplier effect that technology could have when applied properly in financial services. My co-founder, on the other hand, has run boutique research businesses and has also worked on the buy side with large fund managers like Millennium Capital. Uh, we, we came together to start our own brokerage firm coming out of the global financial crisis in 2009, where we worked together, scaled the business, and were lucky enough to see a successful exit a few years later. Yeah, It gave us a very first-hand view into how the institutional market for research, for trading, for, for securities overall was evolving. What were some of the things that were eroding and which which was the direction that the market would take going forward? And one thing that was very obvious was uh, that there was a tremendous uh, thrust um, towards disintermediation. So removing the broker, removing the middleman, yeah. that was starting to come into play. And secondly, um, anything that could be commoditized was being commoditized. And hence... Um, you were seeing a rupturing of profitability across the entire value chain in institutional securities. With that in mind, um, John and I decided that we wanted to be a driver of change and we wanted to take a large staple market of institutional research, uh, digitize it completely and change the business model for it. This is something that really no one had tried to do ever. And we took it upon ourselves to create a niche with that. 
And it's a big niche. And so why had it not been subject to change for so long? And what was sort of in place that allowed you guys to even think that you could do it? So let me tackle the first one first. So the reason research had never, ever changed or there had been no pressure for it to change was because research was never sold separately as a service. It was a service that never had to be priced. No one knew was what the economics of running a research department within an institutional investment bank was. No one knew what the cost of research was, nothing. There was literally no price discovery around research ever. And the reason is because it was bundled together with trading commission. So when an institution came and bought $10 million of Apple or Facebook, the commission that was generated from that sale used to cover a bunch of services. It used to cover access to research, access to conferences, and so forth. And you never really needed to figure out how much these services cost because there was enough margin in that trading commission. Right. As time went by, the commission rates literally went to zero. What's happening with Robinhood in the retail market started to happen uh, on the institutional side much earlier. Technology took over and literally commission rates plummeted. When that started to happen, all these other services, which required you know, human capital, which could not be digitized away, suddenly started to look uneconomical. And there was a lot of pressure to unbundle them away from the trading commission rate. The analogy I like to use here is uh, imagine you go to a hotel and the price you pay for your room at night also covers all sorts of room service. You would go crazy ordering tons of food. Right. And the, and the, right. Right? And yeah. the hotel, and, and you would ransack the mini bar and you know, whatever else. <laughs> right. um, and right. the hotel would never make money on it. Right. And that's sort of what started to happen when that hotel room rate dropped from $50,000 a night to the usual 150. Right. And that's been the one big driver, right? The shifting economics as a result of improved trading technology uh, has led to an unbundling of certain services and hence standalone business models need to be profitable. And then there's a second reason. The second reason is that if you guys remember the Bernie Madoff incident. Ponzi scheme, yeah. Or pyramid scheme, as they say. That's right. So, you know, Bernie Madoff ran what was at that time a very successful asset management company. He was a successful fund manager or made out to be. Once the scandal was exposed, regulators suddenly turned their focus away from just banks and started looking very closely at what asset managers actually did and whether their practices were sound uh, and whether the interest of the end investor, the guy who's pension is being managed, are being washed out. Right. And when they started to do that, they realized that asset management has a lot of corruption. And the regulator started chipping away. And much later on, somewhere in 2018, they passed a sweeping new regulation, which is called MIFID. Very simply put, what MIFID says is anything that you pay for must be invoiced. You will not believe it. Most of the services that asset managers used to consume from their counterparts at investment banks had no invoicing. Hence, you could pad almost any charge in the fee uh, structure of your fund. And you could just report performance net of all of that fees without ever giving any transparent breakdown. Right. 
So, and, and research, as I said, is the, is the biggest cost that an asset manager has above the, you know, the labor of all the fund managers it deploys. So suddenly the regulator was also demanding transparency. And I guess these twin forces of technology shifting economics and the regulator demanding transparency meant that the market had to change. There was no way out now. And um, the incumbents had no incentive to change. They knew that change meant cannibalizing your own business uh, and destroying you know, thousands of jobs within research departments globally. And hence, you needed an external entity that knew the market very well, but was prepared to lead change and work closely with regulators in that evolution. And that's, that's where Smart Karma came along. So I understand the drivers and how the decoupling of research from some asset management companies, especially here in the United States, happened. And like you say, how technology kind of forced this as well. But research is only as good as the research is good, right? And so how do you then, and it's expensive to do well, I think, especially if we're talking about human capital. So then how does Smart Karma tackle the issue of actually making and developing and publishing or, or however you describe it, um, top-notch research? Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific question, actually. And we sort of stumbled on the answer quite inadvertently. But the answer actually lies in the software industry and how the open source model of software development changed how code was developed, i.e. you have to bring collaboration, uh, multi-agency collaboration to research to build, almost institutionalize a peer review process and produce collaborative research in a collaborative manner. So let me unpackage that a little bit. Let's look at why research is not good. Research is not good because, as you said, it's A, expensive to produce. B, distribution of research sucks. You know, you rely on email to send out research to a mailing list. Basically, that's how it's been. Right. Third, it's, been, it's produced in silos. Even within a bank, one analyst doesn't really speak to another analyst. And forget about analyst at bank A speaking to a, an analyst at bank B. Right. So everyone is just blinkered and working in their own silos and writing out what they think they should write out. Now, all of these things mean that research has been just very archaic. Now, you look at, look at software development, look at what GitHub has done, look at what collaborative coding has, has meant. It's meant that people across the world can peer review, fact check, improve upon, and deliver so much faster uh, pieces, of uh, pieces of code. We started to bring, bring elements of that onto the digital stack that we were building for the production of research. So today on Smart Karma analysts who work around the world in different companies, looking at different specialisms, bringing together different domain knowledges, they can read, review, produce, and monetize research quite simply by collaborating on it together. That's a fundamental shift. And you, you know, it's, it's interesting, we're living in this time of COVID-19, and we're starting to see that happen even with vaccine production, right. where scientists from around the world have dropped, you know, they've dropped the walls and dropped the greed around you know, royalty and patents and so on, and they are having to collaborate to bring out a vaccine quickly. So it's, it's very similar. I understand that in the in the vaccine and health sciences world, especially right now, and, and it doesn't always work that mm -hmm. way in terms of like drug discovery and sort of that competitive landscape. But right now we're looking for an, a vaccine for 
COVID-19, and hopefully we're all looking for it together. But in the financial services realm, how is that cooperation sort of a good thing if I'm a bank looking for or an investor looking for an edge and there's just sort of this generalized level playing field, how do I perform better than somebody else or have an advantage? Because if at the end of the day, what I want to do is make more money and everybody has the same information, how do I do that? There, there are actually two parts to it. The first part is you create edge by creating a differing level of access, which is closely tied to the level of sophistication of you as an asset manager. Let me explain that. If all that you're interested in is in knowing what everybody else is buying, that's one level of access. Or you might be the guy who wants to lead everybody and be ahead of the pack. That's a different level of access. Right. Now, what we are in the world, in, you know, in the world of Amazon, for instance, there's Amazon Prime for the guy who wants his goods delivered there and then. And there is an extra fee associated with that higher tier level of service. So Smart Karma, um, in a very, very similar way, has tiered levels of service. You can be a passive consumer of research, or you can be a very active engager of research analysts. Right. And by tiering the services, A, you create much better economies of scale, but B, um, you also give each individual manager what they want at a price point that they can pay. Right. In a similar way, uh, there's financial sort of information services that we have mostly here in the United States, but I guess across the global financial system where you get news first um, and then it sort of trickles mm -hmm. out later to those folks who, who might not need it in such a timely basis. Timeliness is not the only way to build a differential level. In the case of uh, investment research, it's the access to the analyst. Can I jump on the phone and speak to this guy? And can he help me fully understand all the modalities around a particular situation? That's what the premium layer is. Right. As opposed to me be just being able to passively read what he's written. And it's this ability to engage live with our analysts on, seamlessly on the platform is what people want to pay a pretty penny for. Right, right. I, and I, I can completely understand that. So as a technologist, you guys are this interesting combination of, you know, technology and people and brains. That's right. How do you see those two things leveraging, you know, each other? And, and how do you at Smart Karma want to push that even further? Right. So the karma is the people, right? And, and the smart is the digital platform. And the confluence of the two is the data exhaust that results from the consumption of research on the platform by some of the biggest fund managers in the world. So what we are building around Smart Karma are two very important things. First is, in a world where there are so many differing views and opinions around stocks, what matters most is the credibility of each view. How do you build a credibility graph around analyst opinions? That's very important. And the second is, if you could know through observing how research is consumed, how people are positioned at an aggregate level and which way that sentiment is about to drift, you've got a very, very powerful tool at play. And you can only do that by creating a decentralized research consumption platform. So I think we're building a very, very exciting data exhaust to Smart Karma which um, has um, impressive signal quality and impressive predictive quality. 
and tracking aggregate consumption trends across the platform and leveraging them and funneling them back into the platform and to our clients is one way where we will start to see that confluence over time. Yeah, it's it's always about the data or, you know, people <laughs> come to that conclusion, you know, quicker and quicker in, in these marketplaces, but you need to be able to both generate it and harness it. And it certainly seems as you describe it, you guys are, you're in the thick of it. So that's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. So this is your second startup that you founded. Is that right? Or are there more in your past? It's sort of my third. Okay. The first one, uh, the first one I started, uh, during my time at grad school in California. And unfortunately, my two co-founders there, both, you know, they had other things to do. One of them was uh, an ROTC scholar and was sent to Afghanistan. So he could not contribute to the company. And the other one actually joined um, a venture cap firm. And I had to move to London. So, you know, we just could not carry on with it. If we had, it would have been some sort of derivative form of horror. Uh, the uh-huh. question and answer website yep. that we know of. But then um, my first true blue startup was a firm called Aviate Global, which, as I was describing, was a brokerage firm yep. that we joined and grew right after the GFC. That was, um, you know, a pure financial services play. And we were lucky that it scaled very, very fast and it was timed very, very well into a recovery. And it also had a very intriguing and differentiated business model. And yes, so Smart Commons, my third one, and it marries my two loves, you know, my love for investing and my love for technology. Yeah. And I forgot, Aviate was acquired by Relegar Capital, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. So this is your well, almost third startup. Why do it to yourself? Why do it again and again and again? And, um, and also why Singapore? You know, you're right. Like, Running startups is is not for everyone. You know, there is a certain level of crazy required to <laughs> to grow a startup. Uh-huh. But I personally think it's the best job you can do once you've done a few other jobs. So, like, I wouldn't ever recommend to my kids to you know just straight away graduate and do a startup unless they really felt they were onto something. But I feel once you've had your chance to you know work at two or three other firms and learn how the rest of the world operates, you begin to unearth a lot of things that are truly wrong with it. And once you get those insights, you shouldn't hold back. Right. Because the world is the world is short execution, long ideas. So go go execute. Um, that that's that's my feeling. And I feel that today startup life has evolved so much. You know, uh, all the way from how venture capital has made it easy for you to make a decent living while still running a startup, all the way to how much time is required to bring your idea and distribute it around the globe to so many things. Right. I think we're at that David and Goliath point in the evolution of startups where, you know, startups, i.e. the Davids, actually have a lot of power, which the world doesn't realize. So that's that's my view. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. I mean, I love, this is why I like, talking to folks like yourself, that it's always amazing to me what's possible with a small, smart team in the beginning. And like you say, not just an idea, but this just kind of relentless execution, but anywhere in the world, right? And and, and across any industry, really. That's pretty good stuff. That's right. And, you know, there were the, the, the startups of the past were, you know, for example, the explorers who traveled around the world. They set out sail and discovered new continents and so on. 
And you can imagine how hard life was for them. But they had that element of crazy. So I think some people are just born with it. <laughs> right. And you have to go out and venture and, and discover that new land. And you shouldn't hold back if that's your metal. But as I said, do it when you feel you've got some insights about a particular industry. Don't just stumble out in the dark without a map. Yeah, that's that that sort of Peter Thiel, what's your secret kind of uh, way of thinking about oh, it, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. Tell me one thing that uh, you believe in and no one else does. Right. Let's jump into these questions uh, with your permission. Sure. What is a tool you use on a regular basis? Something that you can't quite live without. Right. So um, one of my super favorite tools, I've been advising my friends who are at senior positions within the tech landscape to go out and acquire this company is uh, Zapier. Zapier. Yes. I think the whole no-code movement is going to be immensely powerful. It's the next level of cloud computing, so to speak. And I think Zip, the guys at Zapier have done a terrific job. Well, and so, and why why no code? I mean, you're a technology guy, and I understand like how the abstraction of software development has you know been going on and on and on. Where does that take us, and and why is that such a a big deal? And, you know, I think it's best explained with an analogy. If you look at the world of uh, say hardware manufacturing, one of the reasons why hardware manufacturing is so hard is because of the time it takes to get a prototype ready. The tooling and the prototype manufacturing is expensive and laborious and time-consuming. Now, when you bring it over to software development, engineering resource is expensive and scarce within a company. If a product manager or even a manager within um, a company can quickly bring out a prototype and explain how a process can be improved, that is very powerful the leverage that you can get with that is immense. Right. So, you know, in the AWS world, think about what Lambda does. Yep, exactly. Right? Yeah. And Zapier, Zapier is basically Lambda for dummies. <laughs> right. It makes it super easy for you to take an idea, spend maybe 10 minutes on it, and have a piece of working software, which is in the production environment. Scary, but it can be and be able to prove that idea. Yeah. So that's it. And you, you do not have to be coding literate to do that. That democratizes the process even, even further. So Smart Karma, you guys and your development team, you utilize it to, to like you say, build things and try it out and, and see if you want to push it further? Yes. And, and you know, one of the big use cases that we have around it are, uh, you're going to laugh, but it's uh, building customer experience campaigns. Huh. So we are constantly we're constantly trying to figure out how our customers are consuming uh, research on our platform, and w whenever we pick up a little nugget, you know, for instance, if you've read three pieces of research, you tend to want to download the app. Let's say, let's say that's the insight. Can you use that trigger? I've read three consecutive pieces of research and quickly prompt the user to download the app. Can you try that? Can you right, test it? Right. You know, the product manager might just have that hypothesis on a Monday morning. Well, 10 minutes later, he can build a way that integrates uh, research.view <laughs> as a trigger into app.download as a prompt. Right. And that's great. And being able to, you know, A-B test that very quickly before asking that scarce engineering resource to properly build that into the code base. That's great. That's a great one. 
A leadership practice or routine, something you do with your team or you've done, you know, with teams in the past that that you really think works? Uh, Check in and check out every day. So, and uh, do it asynchronously. So we are a very, very distributed team and, um, you know, all of Smart Karma actually is a decentralized research network. And I think one thing that keeps the, the core team aligned and ticking and productive is this practice of check-in and check-out. And what I mean by that is when you get into work, which might be at any random point of the day, given how people are working from home, for instance, just drop a message on our you know team chat saying, this is uh, what I'm going to do today. Mm. Here are the five bullet points. Right. And at the end of the day, check out. Hey guys, I did these three and I did these two other things that I didn't have on mine. And here are two things that are still pending. That's it. For me, that's a very simple management tool. Right. So, and for, for you and then for the team, is it a question of visibility and productivity? Is it a question of sort of alignment or is it all of the above? I think, I think more than anything else, it's, it, it's back to that collaboration thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when people know what everyone else is, is planning to work on or is working on, they tend to help each other out. Ah, okay. Hey, why don't you let me do that overnight? Why don't you focus on this other thing? Because, you know, I know how to do that better. Now, this, this serendipitous discovery across teams never even happens if people do not know at a certain level of granularity what everyone else is doing. Yeah. You know, things like OKRs are just way too high level, right? Even, even you know, key activities on a quarterly basis are, are way too high level. But getting that sort of intra-week granularity around what people are working on is important. And again, you know, the software development world with things like tickets and trackers has done that. But for for organizations outside of the technology development teams, you do not, like no one has, you know, pivotal tracker or, you know, equivalent. Uh, And creating a simple check-in, check-out process is helpful. People people are used to writing their to-dos anywhere. So connecting that to a team chat is all that's needed. Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting because it also unlocks kind of people's skills too. And like you said, in this collaborative way, I, I get to know what other people are not just working on, but are good at. And so I can lean on them and vice versa. I like that. Okay, a lesson learned. This could be something you are happy to learn or something that you would rather not learn ever again. I think for me, my biggest lesson, and I continue to learn this, is the importance of marketing. As I, as I was explaining earlier, I, I come from a math, computer science, finance background, right? And understanding some of the softer <laughs> skills uh, and toolkits around marketing has been very new to me. And being able to leverage off of that has been, I've, I've always never done enough of that. Right. I've always overemphasized on product and always underinvested in marketing. And I think learning from companies that tend to be marketing-led and leveraging some of those best practices is something that I wish I knew before, but I continue to try and learn more of now. Technologists tend to be suspicious of marketing, like you say. Like, I'm, I built this product. It's perfect. You know, it does this, it does that, and people will love it. Um, so, you know, let's just put it out there and people will come streaming in. How did you kind of, and maybe you didn't have it to begin with, but how did you overcome that kind of natural suspicion of, like you say, marketing and, and that softer 
side of building a company and a business? Again, you know, at the end of the day, economics drives decision making. So for us, looking at how our subscription economics works, you know, uh, looking at how our LTVs to CAC stack up and so forth, we started to realize, you know, the enormous benefit of having a strong inbound channel for customer growth. Now, in the highly institutional B2B world of investment management, people are just not used to an inbound funnel ever. Right. <laughs> You know, hedge fund, ma- hedge fund managers don't believe in inbound, right? The, the, <laughs> a broker has always walked into their office, right? Laid out the red carpet. Right. But we want that we, we at Smart Karma believe otherwise. We feel that the path of self-discovery and um, hence self-promotion to a qualified user is extremely important. And as we started to see the benefit of that percolating down to our metrics, I wanted to unlock it more and more. So I... For me, it was always like, what are they talking about? I don't quite get it. This is not a domain I'm familiar with, right. but this could have a profound impact on the long-term profitability of our network. That w- That's what drew me to it. So I was never suspicious. I was very curious. Right, right. Uh, and it all sounded very alien to me, you know, the world of SQLs, MQLs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think the more I started scratching the surface, the more I realized that lingo aside... Uh, there is something very, very powerful that can be built on top of traditional B2B businesses to unlock tremendous long-term value. I, yeah, I like the way you describe it and, and, and your approach to it as curious rather than suspicious. And I think that's probably the ideal way to be um, if you don't come from that vantage point and you haven't been somehow steeped in it. Final question. I, I know uh, you don't have much free time, but in your free time, what are you binging? What are you watching, reading, listening to? Uh, you live in a city with great food, so what are you eating? <laughs> Good questions. So time is scarce because I, I, I say I've got three babies, right? I've got, I've got Smart Karma as one baby, and then I've got two more at home. One, is, one has just turned seven, the other's just turned or about to turn three. Oh, wow. So what are we, you know, what are we binging ourselves on? We're trying, I mean, I'm playing a lot of chess right now uh-huh. uh, with um, with my elder one, the one who's just on seven. And we are, you know, we're using a lot of online resources to get better at chess and, you know, learning from the best players in chess, the grandmasters and all of that. Uh-huh. So that's that's been a recent obsession. And it's quite fun because I, I think I haven't played chess in the last 20 years. Uh-huh. So I'm rediscovering it. The lockdown has also forced us to sit down together as a family and play carom. I'm not sure if people play carom in the U.S. or not, but it's literally three generations. My dad, me, and my son, we're all sitting down together on the dining table playing carom, which has been great. We're watching a lot more stand-up comedy, Uh but we try to keep it very sort of family-friendly. So Jim Gaffigan is the the new favorite when it comes to stand-up for us. I'm not doing enough reading outside of research, but I don't mind that because I find investment research just so fascinating. Oh, I'm also binging on podcasts at the moment uh-huh. because one of the things that was allowed in Singapore, even through the lockdown, was uh, going out cycling. And there's nothing better than being out on the bike with your headphones on, listening to a great podcast. Right, right. And, um, you know, again, back to investing. So invest like the best. The investor field guide is is sort of a must listen podcast for me at the moment. I think that sums it up. And on the food side, look, what I've been binging on maybe a little bit too much at the moment <laughs> is my, my mom's cooking. Oh, that's good. 
Yeah, my parents relocated to Singapore from India late last year. And just just prior to the lockdown, we asked them to move in into our, our house. So there's eight of us living together <laughs> under one roof. But I get to eat my mom's food every day. Sounds pretty good. Well, I, I have to ask, because I haven't heard of Karam. What type of game is that? Ah, oh, geez, that's very interesting. It's, it's like a very, very small pool table, almost. Oh, Karam as in like Karam. I got it. Huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like a giant Ouija board. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's been really fun, actually. I mean, you know, um, as I said, it's a multi-generation board game for us. That's cool. Raghav Kapoor, co-founder and CEO of Smart Karma. I, I really want to thank you. And uh, um, I, w- I just want to ask the final, final question is like, what should we be keeping an eye out next from Smart Karma? And what will we be talking about when it comes to you guys uh, in the not too distant future? I think without giving too much away, one of the things that we've been thinking very hard about is uh, how do we democratize Smart Karma even further? Our network for now has been extremely curated and extremely limited just to the largest asset managers in the world. But how do we open it up to, you know, the million new investors created every month in Asia, for instance? So further democratization of Smart Karma is probably the next big thing. Sounds very good. Raghav, enjoy your family, enjoy your cycling and your podcasts, and uh, I hope to talk to you soon and see you in some place or another. Thank you, Michael. Great chatting. If you are looking to get started on the cloud with AWS, our Activate program provides startups with a host of benefits, including AWS credits, technical support, training, and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com backslash activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.